You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 24. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife conservation from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. Today in the show, we're talking with Aditya Gangadharan about his research and conservation work in southern India. Aditya has a really fascinating perspective on field research, having worked on conservation projects in India for many years. His PhD project will be the focus of our discussion today, and he has some interesting anecdotes about the challenges associated with working with wildlife in India, as well as some very hopeful results to share. Our interview with Aditya is a continuation of this month's theme of fieldwork in isolation. Now, although this may seem like a strange choice, considering the high human population density in southern India, Aditya explains that the attitude towards fieldwork in this country is such that, in many ways, you really are on your own when you're out in the field. Self-reliance is extremely important, as it is with most field research, but in India in particular, and uh, specifically because of the presence of animals such as elephants, tigers, and leopards, uh, which definitely add an element of danger not found in many other places in the world. Let's hear what Aditya has to say about his research and fieldwork in India. All right, I'm here with Aditya Gangadran, who is a postdoctoral scientist at the University of Alberta. How are you doing today? Good, thank you, Matt. How are you? I'm great. Thanks a lot for coming on to the show uh, to share some of your information with us today. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, so the first question I have for you, um, I'm just curious to learn about how you first became interested in science and biology. Uh, so I guess that's that's an interesting question because I basically sort of grew up in urban India where like all in big cities, right? So there's really not much nature around there. So, uh, but I found that I was just interested in plants, in birds, you know, whatever I saw around me. Um, I guess I didn't really even know that there was something called ecology or wildlife biology that I could do. And, um, but I knew that I was always interested in this. So I kind of drifted off, did chemistry for my undergrad. And then I kind of realized that, you know, really I want to do wildlife biology and there is something like that. So, uh, that's kind of how I got into it. It's like a very circuitous process. So you, you say you grow up in, in, these urban in, areas of of, yeah. of India. Um, mm -hmm. How did you end up at uh, the University of Alberta? <laughs> That's another really long story. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's essentially I did my master's about 10 years ago, and then I was working on various conservation projects. Uh, and then I kind of always had this idea that I want to do a PhD. And um, I've always been interested in these sort of multiple-use landscapes where you know, you have this very rich biodiversity, but also really high sort of economic uses, human populations, that kind of thing. And so I found that, well, my supervisor here, Dr. Uh, Colleen St. Clair, uh, I found that she had, uh, it was conceptually the kind of work she did was very similar to that. And so, you know, I basically wrote to her and said, look, I have this project idea and would it work to, you know, work with you? And she said, yeah, great. So that's how it it seems kind of counterintuitive that I'm here, uh, like, you know, half the world away and studying stuff in India. But 
I guess that's how it works sometimes. <laughs> yeah. So where did the inspiration for for this specific project, uh, looking at wildlife corridors for tigers and elephants, uh, where, where did that idea come from? Well, so this is something that's actually been, uh, well, it's in the field of conservation biology. This is quite a big thing because really we have this situation all across the world where you have these protected areas and reserves that have basically become islands amid the sea of humanity, you know. Uh, so there's these small protected areas. They're separated by agriculture, settlements, all kinds of human infrastructure. And so that uh, that is especially um, sort of apparent in countries like India because there's such dense human populations. And really the only way these animals are going to survive if is if we are able to connect them uh, so that they're able to migrate so that they don't have inbreeding happening in those areas. So I work in this region called the Western Ghats, which is in the south of India. Uh, it's one of the biodiversity hotspots of the world. And here it's it's really like very apparent. Like if you just look at it on Google Earth, you can see the outlines of the protected areas. And so uh, the specific region that I work in, in, the southern part of the Western Ghats, uh, these are areas that were you know, they were one huge contiguous landscape, uh, you know, up to like three decades ago. And so then you had all these highways, settlements, things like that coming in between. And it started cutting off these migration routes for elephants. And so a lot of people have written about this in the past few decades. And so uh, along with some of my colleagues, we decided that, well, let's try to actually, you know, do a project to study this and see what we can do to improve the uh, sort of conservation situation. And that eventually turned into a PhD for me. Gotcha. So I, I guess I'm wondering, you know, what sort of specific research questions you were asking in your PhD project, um, you know, in, in regard to this issue that, that these large mammals are facing in, in yep. India. Okay. So basically we have these two reserves, uh, that are really rich, they're really rich in biodiversity, but they don't have that many animals in them. So uh, one is Periyar, where you have something like, I don't know, maybe 30 tigers. The other one in the south is Kalakkad Mundandurai, where you have maybe 15. So, you know, 30, 15, they're not really large numbers, right? Uh, so that idea was to see whether, um, first of all, can we reconnect them? Are there corridors that could be restored so that we could reconnect these populations? If so, how can we actually do that? Because this is these are really human-dominated landscapes in between. Uh, you know, these are also very economically productive. And so to actually physically map out which are the areas that we can restore, uh, how can we do this? Is it Does it involve a lot of work in private land? Is it government land? And how do we basically work with these stakeholders to restore these corridors, essentially. And so my work was essentially doing the science part of it. So identifying the corridors, where are these animals found? Where are they not found? Where could we possibly restore areas so that they could go back there? And uh, that's essentially what my project was about. I'm really curious to learn what it's like to do field work. Uh, <laughs> I mean, in, in, in other parts of the world in general, but I mean, yeah. you know, specifically in India, um, at this point, you've done field research in uh, 
in in Canada as well. So I yep. guess I'm wondering, you know, how how does it compare? You know, um, and and for folks that you know, like myself, who uh, you know only have experience doing uh, field research in mm-hmm. uh, in sort of the Western world in the U.S. and in Canada, um, yep. you know, how, how does how does it compare? Oh, it, uh, <laughs> the difference is like night and day. It's just. Um, um, I used to get this question quite a lot, which is kind of why I started writing a blog about it as well. Okay. Uh, just to sort of try to convey the reality of how field work is in India. So just to give you an example, uh, say you're a new biologist, right? A new conservation biologist, ecologist, and you're starting off on a project. So it's quite likely that your first introduction to field ecology would be uh, being driven out into the forest, five in the morning, it's still dark, um, to do your surveys. You step out of the Jeep and you get charged by an elephant right away. So <laughs> that's kind of the sort of, <laughs> you could call it trial by fire in a way. Um, that's just to give you an idea of how it works there. Um, whereas, of course, uh, in North America, it's a much more, you know, very uh organized and very regimented sort of process. Um, So, you know, there's advantages and disadvantages to both. Um, You know, trial by fire sort of really uh, brings out the best in you as a field ecologist. But on the other hand, there's a lot of good people that sort of don't really continue on this because, you know, they just, it just seems too dangerous or too difficult for them, uh, which is not necessarily the case if you had better training. And so, yeah, it's really a very, it's a completely different thing. Um, There's not that much support there. Um, You know, if you get into trouble in the field, you're really on your own. There's not much, uh, no one's going to really come and evacuate you out or anything like that. So, yeah, it's pretty challenging, but it's also fun, I think. Yeah, that, you know, just the presence of these large mammal species like elephants, as you said, and, and tigers, um, that's a very striking difference, right? I mean, we really don't have, uh, you know, the diversity of large mammal species here in North America, um, that, that you have in India. So, I mean, there is, I mean, there's certainly a lot of large mammals in North America as well, but I guess maybe they're at lower densities. Mm. So, um, maybe that's why it's sort of, uh, um, you know, it's much more apparent to see like a herd of elephants, you know, uh, whereas here maybe they're much more dispersed out like grizzly bears or cougars and stuff like that. Sure. And there's a, a I mean, there, there's, I guess, a more direct risk that you're taking when you're working in close proximity to animals like yep. elephants and, and yep. like tigers, um, yep. which I'm sure, you know, there's there, uh, I'm sure there's a connection there between you know, uh, dealing with these differences uh, that are related to the presence of these large mammal species um, and and also the interactions that you have with local communities when you're doing field research, Um, because that's going to drive the relationship that local communities have with the wildlife, right? Yep. Yep. Yeah. It's, uh, I think it's just fundamental that when you're working in landscapes like this, so for example, the Western Ghats, uh, just to give you uh, like an indication, uh, the average density of people in this region as a whole is about 300 people per square kilometer. 
So uh, Edmonton, where I live right now, which is a city, of course, is less than half of that density. So, <laughs> you know, we're really talking like you cannot really do conservation without while ignoring uh, the people that live there. That's just the fundamental truth of it. So, yeah, definitely. Um, there's a very strong relationship there. Yeah, and I mean that—that's really amazing. That's, that's a really amazing point you brought up. That you know th- where you are right now in in Edmonton, you know in this uh, in this population center, the human population density is significantly lower than in these areas that are in very close proximity to these wildlife reserves. Um, I mean, it 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 seems amazing to me that that these uh, these wildlife species can can actually you know, uh, uh, even exist at all in, in an area with such uh, high human population density. Yeah, that's, it's actually, I think it's one of the most unlikely things, like uh, the more and more I've gone outside India and looked at other places, it seems more and more, like how is it possible that you can have the largest population of tigers, largest population of Asian elephants, uh, you know, all kinds of other large mammals, in the same country as 1.2 billion people. That seems just, there, there seems to be fundamentally something crazy going on there. And um, there's quite a few reasons for that. And I think, um, you know, there's there's been a long tradition of these very strong top-down laws that have been imposed, uh, you know, starting off from 2,000 years ago. Um, you know, you uh, back in the day, uh, if you killed an elephant, the penalty was death you know, 2000 years ago. So, uh, but I mean, of course it was because elephants were used as an animal for war. Right. Right. And so you want to produce, keep your production of elephants up and you can do that by, uh, you know, keeping these forests secure for them. So, uh, and then you also had these similarly strong laws coming up in the 1970s, uh, you know, the wildlife protection act, there's a very strong domestic constituency uh, of people that uh, support conservation and so it's because of that, I think, a large part of it. But also, there's also this thing of a more cultural sort of a thing. So uh, there are many areas where, for example, there are elephants or other herbivores, deer, for example, that come and destroy people's crops. And people don't really take very strong retaliatory action against that um, because, you know, they just they don't like killing animals. So it's a combination of these things, like a really strong top-down thing with a bottom-up sort of support and culture as well. And I think that's one of the important reasons why uh, we do have, uh, well, you know, they haven't gone extinct yet, essentially. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I would imagine that, you know, despite this, you know, despite the fact that, you know, like you said, there are these... Uh, sort of top-down regulatory approaches, but also this sort of bottom-up, like cultural, uh, uh, you know, belief in um, in uh, protecting these animals. Um, I mean, there there must still be uh, human wildlife conflict going oh, on yeah. in these areas. Oh yeah, there's plenty of that, and that's really one of the that's a massive, massive problem with conservation, uh, especially in countries like India. Which is why I said that really talking to people who live there, that is really the key. Because the way, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> the conservation really works is there's people in urban areas, right, that 
you know, they like animals. They like the idea of wildlife and forests. And so they influence uh, laws like this that say you have to protect these animals. So which is great, which is why these animals have survived. But at the same time, they're not the ones that pay the price for it. So the people that enjoy the wildlife versus the ones who pay the price are completely different. And the people who pay the price are those that live there. Uh, you know, they have to deal with realities such as their crop being destroyed by elephants or, you know, people getting killed by tigers or leopards. And um, it's really difficult to deal with these issues, um, especially when policies are not adequately influenced by science and data, and they're more driven by emotions and things like that. So, um, you know, for example, uh, with tigers, uh, there's quite a few instances of tigers that do kill people. Um, and so as a scientist, I would say that when you have things like that happening, first of all, you have to, that tiger has to go. Like it cannot remain in that population because it's going around killing people, right? Uh, it's just, just a fundamental thing of humanity. And also it affects conservation badly because then people turn against it. But then on the one hand, you have, say, wildlife activists in the urban areas who would say that, no, you you know, leave the tiger alone versus local people that really want some action being taken. And so these are major conflicts that happen. And, you know, resolving them is really the key to having um, these species survive into the longer term. Yeah, that's it's, it's a really fascinating example. And, you know, there are all, definitely a lot of similarities, right, um, between issues going on you know, here in the U.S. and and where I live in 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 Idaho, um, in re, in regards to uh, predator management, right? I mean, yep. and yep. It, it it's similar in the sense that you know you ha we have these policies that um, that often uh, are being influenced more by emotion than by the science. Yes, yes, um, exactly. Right. Um, but you have people on one side saying, you know, wolves, you know, they're you know, there, there shouldn't be, nobody should be killing any wolves. Right. Mm -hmm. And then you have people on the other side saying, you know, all the wolves should be gone. Um, mm -hmm. so yep. it, it's similar in that sense. I mean, the difference though, is that like wolves aren't actually killing people. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, right. to me, it's really that if you're, um, the way I look at it is that by being a conservation, a supporter of conservation, uh, that doesn't mean you have to be anti-human, Right like having a certain level of empathy with people that have to face those issues, I think it's really fundamental. Like if, if there are animals that are killing people, it's, you know, you cannot have animals like that going around. So. Yeah, for sure. And, and I'm sure, I mean, so uh, I, I kind of want to jump back into the focus of your research here. Um, mm -hmm. You know, so uh, th there are these conflicts that exist, you know, specifically with uh, uh, these large predators like tigers and, and leopards that, you know, that do in certain circumstances, there are individuals that that, you know, actively hunt humans, um, which is pretty scary. Um, <laughs> how, how do you deal with creating these wildlife corridors through these densely populated areas when, you know, you have this threat? of, uh, you know, this, this very direct threat of these yeah. animals, you know, potentially attacking humans. Yeah. So that's, that's really, <laughs> that's the key to everything. 
And if I could give a correct answer to that question, I would have solved all my problems. <laughs> but um, that's what I've been working towards. And um, so in my specific study area, uh, actually, the level of conflict with carnivores is pretty low, uh, simply because there aren't that many of them. Uh, you know, if there's not many tigers, then you're not going to have that many issues of conflict with tigers. Um, it's more of an issue here with ungulates and elephants. So ungulates as in deer and uh, pigs, animals like that. So uh, the way I would approach something like that is the general framework um, that people recommend in this sort of situation is uh, you have this, you try to foster coexistence at a really large scale. So if you look at that landscape as a whole, say a few hundred square kilometers, uh, you're going to have multiple different things happening there. You're going to have people living, you're going to have animals, all that kind of stuff. And so you have that at a larger scale. But as you get smaller, what you really want to do is you want to have spatial separation between people and wildlife. And so um, the way you would do that is if you can identify what are the uh, sort of the habitat features that animals really like uh, and what are the habitat features that they don't like, then you can restore areas in such a way that you can direct animals into areas where you want them to go and you prevent them from going into areas where you don't want them to go. So, for example, if you have, say, um, you know, a, a nice, um, nice valley or something like that, which an elephant is likely to choose if it wants to get from point A to point B. Now, you have that valley and you might say that, okay, let's keep this area and say that we're going to preserve this area as a corridor. But say you have a farm next door where they're growing, I don't know, mangoes or some juicy fruits like that. The elephant's going to be walking there and it's going to see those mangoes and just go and, you know, uh, eat that stuff and, you know, raid those crops. So you could, so in places like that, you would need to change cropping patterns, for example, uh, grow some other sort of species of crop, uh, which is not attractive to elephants. You have to set up these barriers to direct their movements. So it's multiple different things, and it really requires very strong management and a very effective and very responsive management to be able to do things at such a small scale. Um, you know, say if there's some instance of conflict that's happening, uh, you need to have people go in immediately and try to address it. Like, how do we do this? How do we get the elephants out of here? Um, if there is damage, assessing that damage, paying compensation as soon as possible. And so uh, it's not a simple issue at all. And so ideally what you want are, uh, you know, corridors without conflict. But really you're, what you're all you're doing is you're trying to minimize conflict as much as possible. Um, there will be some level of it regardless of what you do. Gotcha. Yeah. And I'm definitely starting to get a picture of the importance of getting these, the, getting these folks that live in these areas close by to these corridors on board. I mean, you really, you, you must need sort of universal uh, yeah. cooperation <laughs> from these folks. Yeah. Cause I mean, it's really, and I don't blame them either because they are, you know, living their lives. They're not, very politically powerful or economically powerful. And there's these guys coming from, you know, cities or from, you know, some uh, from other countries and basically telling them what to do with their wildlife. 
And I can definitely understand why people would resent that. And uh, that's why getting that kind of participatory um, sort of buy-in from these people is really important. Uh, you can impose, you know, policies and stuff like that. But really, in the long term, it's much better if you can follow a much more uh, conciliatory approach, um, whereas where you can actually work with people, uh, address their concerns, and consider them to be a legitimate, you know, a stakeholder in that landscape, which they are. So I'm wondering if there are examples of other areas where wildlife corridors have been set up successfully elsewhere in India that you were able to sort of use as, as an example, or were you basically starting from scratch with this idea? Well, there's quite a lot of people that are working on these issues in India, um, and there have been a few success stories. For example, there are some areas where um, you have these very narrow elephant corridors, which um, were in private hands. And so uh, essentially these private landowners had fenced off these areas, uh, which meant that elephants are not able to move through it. And so they basically go to other areas, which means that they have to go through agricultural areas and cause more damage there. And so uh, there have been conservation groups that worked with these people and essentially basically bought off that land, uh, they took down those fences so that elephants, elephants can move through again. Uh, there's a very famous example of uh, elephants moving through tea plantations uh, through these fragments of forests that live with, uh, uh, sorry, that uh, are within these uh, plantations. And so uh, when these elephants move through and there are people there, you know, there is a possibility of conflict, right? So uh, these guys have set up a system whereby they use um, uh, sort of cell phone towers. There's a lot of cell phone towers there. And so whenever someone sees an elephant, they send a message. And that message gets relayed to everyone in that area so that they know that, okay, there's a herd of elephants that are coming through here. So let's not go there today, you know. Um, so it's basically things like this to essentially have that small-scale spatial separation uh, between humans and wildlife, um, which enables humans and wildlife to coexist at that larger level. Um, and, of course, there's... Um, a few sort of more, uh, say, solid infrastructural things. So, for example, there are highways that have been elevated uh, for like, you know, a distance of a kilometer or something so that elephants can move underneath, uh, which are, I mean, they're quite rare because it costs a lot of money, but there are examples of that as well. So I think there's a progress being made. I think we need much more, though, uh, given the rate at which things are changing. Gotcha. So I, I'm curious to hear about, uh, I mean, I guess what you were able to accomplish, you know, through your research. And, and I imagine that you, it, it, it sounds like the cooperation of uh, governmental organizations uh, w must be critical to this, this type yeah. of work. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, uh, tell me a little bit about, you know, what, what you were able to accomplish and, and how these, how you established these, uh, collaborative re relationships to, to mm -hmm. you know, create a situation where your research was able to have, uh, you know, sort of direct policy uh, yeah. implications. Yeah. So like I said, my my whole project was essentially a conservation project that later turned into a, you know, <laughs> into a research project, essentially. And so uh, I've always put very high um, importance to interacting with government 
because ultimately there's no uh, you know non-governmental organization or a research institute that can make such massive changes you have to have uh, these things have to be led by the government so um my own role the way i saw it was essentially to identify the best practices identify basically actionable policies that government could uh, implement in these areas so um i would say the biggest conservation uh, result of my work has been that uh, i actually documented for the first time uh, these elephants that were trying to cross this busy highway and that was the first time it had been documented in 30 years so i showed that these elephants were coming close to the highway they literally got to within like about uh, less than 100 meters of it and then they couldn't cross anymore because there were very steep sides there was a high level of traffic and so they turned around and went back so what this showed was essentially that these corridors which were thought to be broken you know 30 years ago are basically restorable because there are elephants that are coming close uh, you know there's not large numbers of them and it's quite rare but it is happening so if you can put a crossing structure at that exact location where we saw that elephant then the next time that elephant tries to come there and tries to cross it can actually do so so that to me is one of the major uh, sort of policy um, implications of my work essentially showing that these corridors are not completely degraded and they are actually restorable um the second thing which was actually much more surprising for me was that um a large part of my study area is actually plantations so these are tea and rubber plantations uh you know highly human dominated areas you know they're not really wildlife habitat you wouldn't think of it as wildlife habitat so i was amazed when i found that um there are certain species that are actually threatened uh you know according to the iuc and they're either endangered or uh, threatened so uh, or vulnerable so uh, these are species like wild dogs we have uh, wild dogs in india and there's a large deer called the sambar these are species that are actually using these disturbed human dominated areas um and they're actually using it at the same level or even more than the pristine forest so to me that was amazing like these areas that when you're doing conservation you wouldn't even consider them usually like why would you think that you know this tea plantation needs to be protected well you have these threatened species that are actually using it quite a lot so which is kind of a good sign that it means that uh there are species that can adapt to these um sort of human disturbed areas and so the challenge is how do you now implement policies in these areas uh you know many of which are privately owned uh and uh, sort of work with these landowners to have conservation friendly practices and so these are the sort of the main things that came out of my thesis and um uh based partly on that there is a governmental project it's called the biodiversity conservation and rural livelihood improvement program so this is actually a pretty large donor funded project and the idea it's one it's what is called um an integrated conservation and development program where you try to have conservation and you also work with people so that their livelihoods benefit so this is something that's been in the works for many years and so uh based partly on my research 
the government has decided to operationalize this in this particular study area. So to me, that's quite a big thing. Like it's, it's actually leading to some uh, sort of tangible policy uh, impacts. Uh, of course, that's it's going to be years before you see any effect. But you know, it's it's a start. I would say. Yeah, I mean that that sounds like a huge accomplishment to me. I mean that that's I mean both facets of your research, um, you know, paint these very sort of positive. I mean, un- unexpected, you know, sort of positive uh, uh, components of um, of of what's going on in in that region and and to. Uh, to be able to take that and you know a- a- approach uh, these governmental organizations with that and have them uh, you know w- within a very short time span you know a- a- agree to implement that into policy is is just fantastic. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, I, like as I mentioned, they, it was sort of in the works for quite a long time, and uh, you know it's essentially I guess I might, might have hurried up the process a little bit. Um, <laughs> So I wouldn't want to take too much credit for that. <laughs> but I mean, it is. I mean, it's it 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 sounds very hopeful. Um, and and you know, it's yeah. yeah. I I I love talking about these these conservation success stories. And yeah. I mean, this definitely sounds like a a pretty neat example of one. Um, and just sort of identifying some uh so, some additional ways that you know we can lessen these human wildlife conflicts and create these uh, uh systems where you know, humans and wildlife are able to coexist. Um, it's, it's very hopeful. So that's great. I, I wonder how easy it was to work with these governmental organizations. You say that this this conservation program was was in the works, um, but I mean, it sounds like they were sort of very eager to 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 get the results of your research and incorporate them into that project. Were these groups uh, easy to work with? Well, so the thing is that when you're working with any organization, whether it's a governmental one, a private one, or a non-governmental organization, uh, it's it really comes down to the people that are there, right? So, uh, you know, I have to say that as researchers, um, I have often come across this tendency for people to kind of really not want to work much with governments, uh, sort of stay doing their own research, stay within their own community, interact with only other researchers, other scientists. Uh, But that's really not how conservation is going to be done. You have to work with people. So um, it's, you know, if you approach it with a positive attitude, I think it is definitely possible. Uh, There's certainly a lot of uh, suspicions, you know, on the the part of managers towards scientists. Uh, For example, one... um, common complaint I used to get from them is that, well, you know, all you researchers come here, you do all your studies, and then you go off and then you, you know, we never hear from you again. And, um, you know, we don't know what you have done. Uh, You know, you don't give us the results in a way that is understandable to us. Um, You know, so because a lot of scientists just publish their papers in a scientific journal, but really, uh, there's not that many managers who have access to those journals. And these are really complex, uh, highly statistical, highly mathematical papers that you write. And (laughs) there's not that many people outside of that speciality who can understand uh, what is done there. And so I think as a scientist, it's up to you to take that extra effort to talk to managers, 
to try to understand, look at things from their perspective, understand what they want, and try to provide material that will help in that, uh, in achieving that goal. So, and if you do that, I think you have a much greater chance of success than if you just go do a study and publish it in an academic journal. So, really, I would say that, um, uh, I guess the main thing I've learned is that conservation biology is really not as much about biology, it's more about people, which is kind of surprising. I'd never thought of it that way, but uh, the more time I spend in the field, the more apparent it becomes to me that really this is not a biological science. It's so interdisciplinary. That's definitely a really important point to make, for sure. And that's, uh, that's I guess, a theme that, that we come back to over and over again um, yeah. on this show is you know, the importance of interaction between wildlife communities and human communities and how that yeah. really is central to, to every conservation issue that we're, that we're dealing with on the planet. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's, it's great to hear from folks like you who, who uh, sort of take, take that to heart. Um, and I mean, you're one of those researchers who didn't just walk away from your research when it was completed, publish it in a scientific journal and forget about it. Um, you know, you took that extra effort to, 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 I mean, you must have taken that extra effort to uh, uh, put the results of your research into a form that yep. that these folks were able to understand and and use yep. to to implement this p policy action. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's really uh, and uh, so. For example, I'll give an example. Uh, so you know, I talked about these elephants that were trying to cross right that highway. Mm -hmm. So. Um, I actually had results from my models, my statistical models, uh, predicting that elephants would be likely to use these areas. And I've had that for many years, you know, and I'd been trying to uh, talk to the government about it and say that, look, these are the corridors that potential corridors that I've identified and stuff like that. So, um, but really what <laughs> actually prompted um, action on their part was this, just this single incident of, I got these pictures of and animals that came to this particular area and tried to cross and couldn't go cross. And so they went back. So that's kind of like the way it works, right? You need to show um, actual things rather than these statistical models that to a scientist that make complete sense. But outside of that speciality or that specific field, um, you know, the people may not be particularly um you know, interested in it, or they may not really be convinced by it. Whereas this one single incident was really important in showing these things. And so, um, yeah, it's definitely uh, like a lot of lessons learned. And it's um, a lot of, uh, it's been very interesting to learn about these things. <laughs> you know, I, I love that example, because that's something it, it it's very similar to a lot of what, what I deal with as a filmmaker, right? And, you know, the sort of the one uh, lesson that I come back to over and over again when I'm talking with, um, you know, young aspiring filmmakers and especially, you know, folks who uh, have uh, a background in research and science um, mm -hmm. who are just kind of learning about sort of best ways to communicate their science to a wider audience and to also maybe mm -hmm. communicate these ideas through the medium of film. Um, mm -hmm. The number one thing I tell folks is, you know, show your viewers what's going on. Don't yeah. tell them. Yeah. You have to show yeah. it. Yeah. You can't just <laughs> tell it. Um, yes. And yeah. it's, it, yeah, it's, it's, 
it's definitely interesting to hear you say almost the exact same thing um, yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, in, in what you're trying to accomplish um, in communicating this, this research to, uh, uh, you know, the, the folks that have the ability to influence policy. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I, I, I guess my next question is, um, you know, you're now in, so you've completed your research um, mm-hmm. and you're now working on uh, postdoctoral, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. postdoctoral research um, there in Canada. So, mm-hmm. um, so you're doing field research uh, uh, in Alberta currently, mm-hmm. is that correct? Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, not that much field research, unfortunately. Um, that's one of the problems of getting a PhD. You're like more valued now for your analytical skills than your field skills. <laughs> so that's kind of sad. But um, yeah, this is essentially, it's a project that uh, my supervisor was working on uh, in Banff National Park. You have this railway line that goes through. And so there's grizzly bears that are getting killed on those railway lines. And so the idea is to, uh, you know, figure out why are they getting killed? Are they being attracted to those areas in some way? And once you identify what are the reasons, uh, you can then figure out how to mitigate that. So that's what I'm doing now. And I'll be probably on this project till November of this year. So I I guess I'm wondering what it's like to uh, be working on a research project, um, you know, in in, in this area, you know, here in North America after, you know, spending so many years uh, working, I mean, dealing with... uh, similar issues but in such a different area of the world well i guess i've just got into this now i just started it last month so i can't really say much about that but um i would say that yeah definitely a lot of the things are similar um a lot of the issues are similar you know there's these linear barriers such as highways and railways uh again it's the same issue of a large mammal uh you know a threatened species so there's lots of similarities definitely uh, so, yeah, I guess I'll sort of it'll be really interesting uh, in the next few months to see what I learned from this, to see, you know, how I could apply some of the stuff I learn here to other uh, projects I work on. So do you have long term goals to continue doing research and conservation work in India? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think my um, uh, sort of long term goal is probably to be at the interface of science and policy. So. Uh, you know, I want to do research. I like, you know, doing research and learning stuff. But I also like for those research um, results to be actually used for something for conservation. Uh, and that's ultimately why I got into this field anyway. It's not for the love of, you know, science. It's for actually doing science to have an impact uh, that will improve uh, the status of wildlife. So, yeah, there I do have, that's my sort of general long-term goal. Uh, there's multiple pathways to do that. For example, you could, you know, uh, work with research institutes, get your own grants. Uh, that really depends on the size of the grants you get, for example. Uh, there's lots of, you know, uh, international non-governmental organizations uh, that you could work with. There's universities as well. So I guess I'm keeping all of those specific options open. But in general, like thematically, conceptually, uh, the kind of thing I'm interested in is uh, bridging the gap between science and policy. Well, it's it's definitely, I think, a, a really important uh, area to focus on. And I, it, I, I think you're, the example that you put forth in your PhD research, um, it, 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 
it sounds to me like a example of a really um, fantastic conservation success story. Obviously, it's still in the works, and we're in still the, waiting to see you know, what what the results of this will be. Yeah, um, maybe a decade from now. <laughs> yeah, but you know that's that's the scale that that you know that's the, yep. the sort of the the time frame that you have to think about on projects like this, and it, yeah. it, it definitely sounds like. You know, you've you've accomplished a lot of really amazing things. You know, through that research and through collaborating with uh, uh, you know folks involved in policy, um, and it's yeah, it's it's great great to hear about your project. Yeah, yeah. I just like to um, point out that of course it wasn't just me, right? It was I was working with a lot of different people. So uh, I was working with a non-governmental organization in India, uh, the Foundation for Ecological Research, Advocacy, and Learning, uh, and of course you know here with the University of Alberta, which is where I was doing my PhD from. So you know, of course, it's just, it's not, it's a lot of people who have worked very hard for this. Sure, so, sure. And establishing those collaborative relationships, of course, yeah. are, are always an essential component of yeah. getting a project like that uh, yeah. up and going and, and making sure it's successful. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot for coming on to the show and sharing all of this amazing information with us. Um, yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks, Matt. And I really enjoyed that. All right, that was our interview with Aditya Gangadharan, postdoctoral researcher at the University of Alberta. If you listen to this show regularly, you know that I love it when guests draw parallels between field research and filmmaking. And Aditya's explanation of the need for a tangible way to show policy officials the importance of these wildlife corridors is a perfect example of this. Of course, the stress that Aditya places on working closely with people in local communities is is also extremely important to touch on. This comes up over and over again on the show, but Aditya is the first of our guests, I believe, to outright state that these relationships with community members are the most important component of successful conservation programs. As he mentioned in the interview, Aditya has a blog where he shares his field research stories from his unique perspective. Uh, check out the show notes for a link to Aditya's blog. Uh, Aditya will also be participating in our collaboration with the Dispatches from the Field blog and sharing a guest post uh, over there this coming Friday. So we'll have a link to uh, Dispatches from the Field in the show notes, and uh, definitely stay tuned for the release of Aditya's post on Friday. We'll be sharing that around on all of our various social media channels. These show notes uh, can be found at wildlandsinc.org slash EOC24. The show was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Humidors. The Humidors.